I'm really grateful that Andrew uh, invited the kids to class before I got up here because they'd be very disappointed. Like, oh, you? Really? You? So thank you for doing that. I appreciate that, Andrew. Yeah. You know, we've got uh, a lot going on as a church family, and I want to encourage you to come on by tonight for the congregational meeting. Uh, we got some, some exciting updates to give. Of, if you haven't been with us for a while, you might not be aware of this, but we've embarked upon this thing called Access for All. And it's a project where we're going to be taking that, if you look through those windows, the original building uh, where our current nursery wing is, and we're going to be expanding it this way. We're adding an elevator. We're expanding the nursery also, making it more welcoming and open and refreshing restrooms to make it an inviting place for people to come, where they can also, if they have uh, mobility issues, they, they can freely move uh, throughout our, our, our building and, and, and participate in our, our life as a church family. And so uh, there's... We're at a, at a new phase, and we just want to let the church family know where we're at. And it's exciting. And there's new ways for you to be involved as well. And so be sure to come tonight and, and hear more about uh, that update. And, and also, we want to praise God for just the way he's been providing. And I, I want to say thank you to all of you who have been giving uh, to make this happen. Now, I, I don't know at all at any time who gives what at our church, okay? I, I stay far away from those records. I, I'm thankful for people who do know that. I never have any idea. But I do know this much. I do know that people have been giving sacrificially in order to make this project come into being. And so we praise God for that. I just want to encourage you, keep, keep doing that um, as we seek God and as, even tonight as we'll find out more about, uh, about what's going on. And, and again, thank you for that. I don't, I don't think we say thank you enough sometimes in those, in those things. Uh, something else that's going on tonight, too, after the congregational meeting, um, and, and that is this. There's a very special uh, couple who's going to be moving to Idaho. They are the Rabenbergs, Tom and Melody. And they have been a part of our church family longer than most of us can remember. And uh, we're going to deeply miss them. And so tonight, after the meeting, we're going to have a special time to be able to, to say goodbye, say we love them, and all that stuff. So you won't want to miss that. So, so be sure to come to that. If you can't make the meeting itself, you can come afterwards for that. You'll get some weird looks. But you can, no, I'm kidding. You won't get weird looks. Just come on by. Just be there if you can, uh, because we want to be able to say uh, goodbye, temporarily goodbye, to this couple that we, we love dearly. Um, so... Uh, maybe you've heard of this band called U2 before, you know? Pride in the Name of Love, Joshua Tree, there's some good songs. Uh, they just actually launched their residency in Vegas at a new venue called Sphere. No, it's not the Sphere, it's just Sphere. And you walk in and the thing can hold, I think it's 18,000 people. It's essentially a massive digital arena that uh, can project things, the, enti- the walls and everything change as the performance goes on. But their, their guitar player, his name is The Edge. That's his name. I, I've always loved that, The Edge. And he's very, very innovative. He did some things with the guitar using uh, delay pe- pedals and other things that just kind of give you two that sound. But there's a recent story that I saw about The Edge. And so it was a little while back. He took his son out trick-or-treating in L.A., and what they decided to do is, is the, the son and him, they both dressed up in kind of the Edge's trademark way, the black beanie with the black leather jacket with a guitar slung around his neck. And they kind of just walked around the neighborhood, you know, knocking on doors and all that. And they walked away from one door and they heard a couple in the house say, oh, that's a bit sad. 
that dad doesn't look anything like the edge. You know, you're kind of like, wow, that's rough. You can't even dress up as yourself, okay? That's, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. But, but we find that sometimes, you know, there's someone standing right in front of our eyes and we do not recognize them. We don't get it. We don't see them. And, and, and when we see the gospel accounts in the New Testament, we find that Jesus' life was just populated, really, by people standing there around him, looking at him, he is obviously who he says he is. He declares it clearly, what he did, the way he lived. And yet, with everything unfolding in front of their eyes, they still do not recognize him. And I I think for us at times, we think, you know what, if if we were there, we'd do better. We would have known, we would have seen. But then we got to ask the question, are, are we sure about that? Do you know how many versions of Jesus there are today that people kind of prop up and around. There's, you know, the self-help Jesus. There's the prosperity Jesus. You know, there's the political Jesus. There is the, you know, um, make sure that that, uh, we always fit into whatever you want Jesus. There's the consumer Jesus. There's all kinds of Jesuses. But thankfully, the New Testament does not allow us to hold to those false views of Jesus. And the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament were very clear about bringing forward what Jesus actually said and what he actually did. And you know what it does? It confronts all of us. He confronts every one of us. He doesn't let us just kind of hold on to our own preconceived ideas about who Jesus is and doesn't let us just kind of take that and fit it into our way of life. Instead, we're confronted and we're caused that we need to repent and turn and change our way of life to fit in with his call, his agenda for us. But the question I want to ask is, do you really recognize Jesus? And in light of that, let's go ahead and turn to, to Luke chapter 4 as we continue through the gospel of Luke. You'll find that on page 47 in the Bible on the chair rack in front of you. And and we're in the New Testament, so that's actually toward the the back in the second section. There's a new set of page numbers there. But page 47, Luke 4, beginning in verse 14. Jesus has, has gone out filled with the Holy Spirit and he has been tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And Jesus stood by repeatedly declaring, it stands written, it stands written, it stands written. And, uh, and then he comes to this point of now, after finishing those temptations, the devil has left him until an opportune time. And in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Begin with verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind 
to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and and ask that in this time you would unfold your word for us, that your spirit would work amongst us and in us to learn, to grow, that we would become the people you want us to be, that we would see you more clearly, that we would walk with you, that we would uh, repent and turn and change in the ways that you would call us to, that we would uh, rejoice because you are exactly who you said you are. And so we, we praise you for this now. We look to you now to, to work in this way. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So as we explore this passage, we're, we're going to be looking at this idea that if we recognize Jesus, we're actually going to grasp several things. And the first thing is this. We're going to recognize the claim of Jesus. Uh, look at what he says. I mean, here, here he is. He, he enters into you know, the region of Galilee and the power of the Spirit. That, that shouldn't surprise us, right? The Spirit that sustained him in the temptation is the same Spirit that's going to guide, lead, and empower him in his daily ministry. Of course, it's his Spirit. Again, that's a mysterious thing, okay? But it's, it's, it's the reality of, of the, again, the sort of way in which the, the Trinity works, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Jesus is there, and, and he's... What does he begin to do? Look at verse 15. He begins teaching in their synagogues. Uh, That's a main component of his ministry. As a matter of fact, he was often referred to as teacher. That's what his followers and others would call him. And that's a key thing. And... uh, and as he does this, he's also in the synagogue. And so you would see that as, wait, you know, is that, is that a significant thing at that time? Very significant. Uh, people that could not be in Jerusalem, they would gather in these public gathering places as God's people, and they would do certain things on a weekly basis. Uh, they would, first of all, gather together. They would hear the, the word read. And then someone would take what was read from the word and then expound it or explain it. Uh, they would spend time together in that way. And it's very interesting that, hey, what, what are we doing today? Huh. We just had the word read. And now someone's expounding it and explaining it. And we're together. Yeah, we, we didn't make this up. <laughs> okay, this is something that, that was done throughout many centuries in ancient times. And Jesus gives us his endorsement of that by himself embracing that, living that out, getting involved in that, and even making that a key part of his ministry. Um, and so he comes to Nazareth, and that's interesting because that's his hometown. That's where he grew up. That's where everybody saw him from a, from a baby and onwards. And he, and he goes in to the synagogue and he stands up to read, and then a scroll is handed to him, and it's Isaiah. 
And, and he opens it to a certain spot. Now realize he didn't have a, it wasn't in a book format like this. It would have been a scroll and they had these wooden handles and they would be able to twist them and the scroll would go through like that. So he had to, you know, look for that specific spot, but he was obviously skilled in, in the word. Remember when he was a kid, he was in the temple talking with the religious leaders of that time and they were amazed at what he knew and, and how he could converse with them. And so he, he opens up to one of the servant songs in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, to be exact. And he reads it. And uh, he stands to read it. And then, and then what happens is he, 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 he sits back down. And you can kind of imagine it's like there's this hushed moment. Like, okay, he's read this. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? And, and um, you know... Unlike, I mean, if I, if, I, if I read the Bible to you and then said, okay, all of you, all of this has now been fulfilled because I've just spoken it, I would hope you would run for the doors screaming. Please, get out of here. He lost his mind because I would have. But what does Jesus do? He, he, he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your Hearing, whoa! What does that mean? I mean, they undoubtedly were going, really? Why? Because this is a servant song. This is a messianic passage. They all know that. It's a bold claim, a bold declaration. I am that promised one. It's me, Jesus says. And we look at what it says about Jesus. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this shouldn't be surprising. I mean, it was, you know, he, he, we found out in chapter 1, verse 35, that Jesus was conceived by the spirit. In chapter 3, he was anointed by the spirit at his baptism. In chapter 4, in the beginning, he was led by the spirit in his face off with the devil in the wilderness. And so, of course, the spirit is empowering him, as we just said, to bring good news to the poor. Now, what's that about? He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Uh, th this is the idea of uh, bringing good news. Uh, when, when, a, when a king would conquer a region, the, the heralds would go out, especially if it was a king that was delivering people from an evil. And, and it's very much a heralding the reign of this new good king. That's the picture. And he's preaching the gospel to the poor. Uh, we find Jesus referring to those who are in the Beatitudes to the poor in spirit. So it, is, it is, would be those people who are beggars in and of themselves, who have nothing to offer God, who cannot commend themselves before God, who can't say, yeah, that's right, Lord, you want to rescue me because I've got plenty to offer you. No, these are empty-handed beggars before God. And he sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And that's the idea of people who are in, 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 ensnared, in chains. Interestingly, the previous section, Jesus was encountering temptation from who? The devil. Other places in scripture we find that as the devil is the quote-unquote ruler of this world, in a sense, that he has people under his power. Under his uh, bondage. 
And so Jesus is coming and he's proclaiming release to captives. And he's going to actually demonstrate that in some very tangible ways in the verses to come. You'll notice it also says that he will bring recovery to the sight of the blind. And blindness was a really common disease in, in Palestine in the first century. And, and so it could refer to at different places in Scripture to, the, to those who are literally physically blind. Uh, these would be a group of people who were excluded from, from temple participation. Uh, blindness is also a theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. And it's gonna, we're going to see that at various times in various places that Jesus is bringing sight. In other words, he's opening their eyes to see. In other words, it's, it's a picture of salvation. When you're blind, you can't see what's real, what's true. And when Jesus saves, he turns the lights on for the first time and he brings sight. And so opening eyes is related to to seeing God's salvation as it's brought about in the work of Jesus. You'll recall that uh, when, when, when Paul encountered Christ on the Damascus Road, his eyes were blinded and later opened. That's gonna happen in Acts. Luke wrote that account too. Later in this very gospel, at the conclusion, the disciples on on the Emmaus Road, Jesus is right there in their midst, and then their eyes will be opened, and they will see. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's taking that passage and saying, I am this promised one, and I am fulfilling these very things in my life and work and ministry. And then verse 19, look at that. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What's that all about? That's really referencing back to the Old Testament practice of the year of Jubilee. It was also known as the year of release. And what happened was, uh, as, as written in Leviticus 25, that every 15th year they would, they would proclaim a release to all those who inhabit the land. And that, that meant that those who had lost their family entitlement of land, they would receive it back. And those who were in debt were forgiven all their debts. And those who had sold themselves into slavery in order to pay for those debts, they were released from slavery. It's a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because at that time in Israel, there were people drowning in debt. Kind of like today. And, and it's interesting because Jesus here is, is bringing this forward to show that though, you know, he's not reinstituting the, the year of Jubilee per se. He is saying though that his people need to live in light of the principles of the year of Jubilee. We need to live that way. And that's why he'll teach them to forgive debts in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have offended us. And so we, we, we're called to live out of Jubilee principles among ourselves. In many ways, the church now is the community of Jubilee. Freedom, release, forgiveness, grace, all because of what Christ has done. And when Jesus says this, you can kind of see he closes the books, the eyes of the synagogue are on him. 
you know, the idea was that there was an attendant, so he would roll it up and go, here you go, and then he would sit down to preach. Um, I'm not going to sit down to preach because, quite honestly, I'd probably fall asleep if I sat down to preach, okay? No, I wouldn't. You would! No, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't. But I think, you know, that was just a cultural norm for that time. But when he says these prophecies are being fulfilled right now in my own ministry, he's very much saying someday has now become today, right now. And so salvation, he's saying, is happening now. And it does recall what happened earlier at his birth. Do you remember back in chapter 2, verse 11? What did the angel say? For to you is born today in the town of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That same idea. It's now. It's happening now. And to many who are sitting there, again, they're going, is this not Joseph's son? I don't, I don't think they are looking at that in some sort of skeptical way going, come on, Joseph's son. He can't say this. No, I think there's other places where hearers would say that. I think in this context, they really are amazed. There are these gracious words that are falling down, you know, out of Jesus' lips, falling on their ears, and they're going, this is wonderful. They're amazed. And he makes this claim, and they're going, okay, okay, we're listening. We're open. We're listening. And, and, and they're accepting that. And here's the thing. They're accepting the claims of Jesus at this point. Why should they accept them? Well, because when Jesus says this has been fulfilled, he can say that because you know what? It is being fulfilled in him. You know, we're back to that kind of C.S. Lewis's uh, The Trilemia, right? Where he kind of comes and, and, and writes, you really only have three options with Jesus. He's either Lord or liar or lunatic. Those are the three options you have. You know, is he a liar? Well, the problem is that when you look at his statements, you see, well, everything he said is true. And obviously, this is a man who, who proclaimed truth, and, and, and that's not the way his words read at all. You know, he's candid. He's honest. That's we'll find in a moment, almost to a fault. <laughs> is, is he a lunatic? Well, again, what lunatic would come up with some of the most sane teaching the world's ever heard? Look, look at the Beatitudes. Are those the rantings of a lunatic? No, that's, that's the best way you could possibly live. So he's obviously not that. Well, there's only one option left. He's the Lord. And he's not just going to say this. He's going to prove it. He's going to show us that. He's the Lord. So the question for all of us is, will you accept this claim of Jesus that he is, in fact, the sent one, the Messiah, the Savior. Will you receive that? And if you're here today and you've not done that, the invitation to you is today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Receive the gift of salvation that he offers to you. Receive forgiveness of sins. Cleansing. Receive the jubilee the favorable year of the Lord, whereby your debts are canceled because he's paid that debt on the cross, whereby you are released from slavery to sin, and whereby you enter into this new season of jubilee. 
That's the offer before you right now. Accept his claim. Accept that his claim, because it's true. So if we really recognize Jesus, we're going to grasp not only the claim of Jesus, but secondly, we're also going to grasp the offense of Jesus. Because the narrative takes a really, really big turn here at this point. He's teaching them. They're wondering at his gracious words. And then without a beat, Jesus continues on. Look at verse 23. And then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you that in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on their city that had been built, or on, the, on the hill on which the city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Okay, so does someone need to take Jesus aside and go, hey, Lord, so when you've got them in the palm of your hand, like you, you had them right there, there's some things you probably shouldn't say so you don't make them mad. Like this is like public speaking 101, right? When you've got them there, don't mess it up. But I don't think the Lord needs help with preaching. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. This is the finest expositor to ever grace human beings with words. And look at what he does. He's not content to sit there in their accolades. He's not content to be, you know, seen as this wonderful speaker and, oh, man, let's build a massive following. That's not what Jesus does. No, if anything, in this moment, he's actually exposing their hearts. Do you remember back when, when Simeon prophesied about Jesus as a baby? And he said, the hearts of many will be disclosed by him. Well, that's what Jesus is doing right here. You see, he'd been traveling around, he'd been preaching, he'd been teaching, and he'd started doing miracles. And so they're, they're going, wait a minute, physician, heal yourself. It's kind of a colloquialism that's being used to say, hey, we're Nazareth, we're your hometown. We're practically related to you. So if you're going to do that cool stuff around different places, Capernaum, other places, well, here, you better bring it. So let's see the stuff. Implied in that is also this idea is because we're so close to you, because we're family of sorts, we should have a special privileged place right alongside you. And Jesus is not there to coddle their quote-unquote felt needs. Jesus is not there to kind of feed into their sense of 
Well, we're important because we're a part of his hometown. A hometown that probably consisted of maybe, I don't know, 150 people? Wasn't a big town. We got more people in here probably than we're in the town. So they're thinking, we're tight with him. We're close. But he's not going to cater to that at all. Why? Because he is giving them a message of salvation from God. They don't get to determine how it looks. They don't get to frame it the way they want to. They don't get to take it and fit it into their lives. No, Jesus comes, declares the truth because their lives need to be reoriented around him, the Lord. And so he says... He actually gives two examples. Um, two examples of, of uh, different times in the history of Israel, well attested to in the Old Testament, where God did save someone. And yet, it's shocking the way he did it. The first is, is uh, given with, from the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And we're, we're told in, in 1 Kings 16 about this, this event where the skies were shut and there was no rain and there was, of course, a, a desperate need for food. And what does Elijah do? He's not sent to the people of Israel. Instead, he is sent to this widow, Zarephath. And where is she from? Sidon. What was Sidon known for? Well, that's also someone's hometown. You know whose hometown Sidon is? Jezebel's. Yeah, Jezebel's not a popular person in Israel. We've said this before. There's a reason why people don't name their daughter Jezebel. It's just not going to happen. That's what Sidon's known for. So can you imagine now this, you know, Jesus saying, hey, Elijah, he wasn't sent to Israel those, he was sent to another place, another land, one of the pagan nations, not only any pagan nation, not only any pagan region or city, but Sidon. And yet, what does Elijah do? He prevents the death of the widow. He prevents the death of her son. There's a miraculous supply of meal and oil. Later, her dead son is resuscitated. And we find a picture in that story in 1 Kings. You know what it is? It's a picture of Jew and Gentile saved together. Elijah, this Gentile widow, and her son, they ate together. And, and it's, it's sort of a depiction and a preview of the fellowship that's going to happen between Jews and Gentiles that will come about in Christ that will be beautifully displayed to the world in the church. But it made this group of people furious. You know Why? Because if they're listening closely, and they are, and if they're hearing what Jesus is saying, it's very clearly this. You, my brothers and sisters from Nazareth, you are apostate Israel. 
And so this idea of, you know, hey, we're closely related to you, we're, Jesus is going, that has nothing to do with it. You need to repent. He does the same thing with the next, next example of Elisha's ministry. Because there were many lepers in the land of Israel. But who was cleansed? Naaman. Where was Naaman from? Syria. Again, an enemy of Israel's. And by the way, reading that account is a fascinating thing. If you've got time, I would encourage you to go there. 2 Kings chapter 5. Because we find this general who is just considered a, a very, very highfalutin, prominent man. And he comes to the prophet Elijah. And what happens? Elisha says, just go into the the river and wash. You know, what? It's like, come on, I thought you were going to give me some, you know, incantation. You know, back then it was like when you came to a prophet to have something done, they'd, oh, let me get my gear out, right? The bag comes out and I got this, I'm going to sprinkle this on you and I'm going to say this, blah, 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 and poof, healed. None of that. He wouldn't even see him. This prominent, he goes, yeah, just tell him to go, go to the river, wash, he'll be cleansed. <laughs> Completely breaking the stereotype of what this prominent general uh, anticipated and even was demanding. And then some of his servants around him said, you know what, just, just do what the guy's saying. Just do it. And so Naaman does. But in order for him to do that, he has to believe. It's an act of faith. He's trusting what the prophet has said. And he does so and he's cleansed and he actually becomes a follower of Yahweh and actually brings news back to his own people. So again, another picture of God's plan to rescue every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And I'm stunned that we're in this this week. If you were with us last week, we were in Psalm 87. And we saw how God was declaring are you the, those from Babylon and, and those from all these other nations? Again, Philistia, places that were enemies of Israel, people from those places coming to God through the gates of Jerusalem, of Zion. And the declaration made of each of these different people, groups, and nations is this one was born in her. That's God's heart for the nations. And it's shown here again in Luke's teaching, in, or sorry, in Jesus' teaching in Nazareth. Verse 28, they are filled with rage when they heard these things and they literally, like they drive them out of the city. They, they go from, wow, these are wondrous words. And then Jesus tells them the truth and they're like, what? and then they want to kill him. It's also fascinating that Jesus actually prophesies and says to them, a prophet is never respected or welcome in his hometown. <laughs> you know what he's saying? He's saying, you guys are about to treat me in a way that's going to demonstrate that I'm a real prophet. There's other places where Jesus will say something like this, far be it for any prophet to perish anywhere else except for Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem kills all the prophets that are sent to her. 
Because the role of the prophet is not, again, to coddle people, to give them what they like to hear. The goal of the prophet is to simply say, thus says the Lord. And again, church family, I am grateful for Clayton Valley Church because you know what? Here, there is a desire amongst us to hear what the Bible says. Praise God for that. And thank you. It's a privilege to be able to serve as one of the pastors here. Really, I do. I talk to other friends who are pastors and they're just like, oh man. There's, there's, There's just like, yeah. Resistance. By the way, there's no promises. I realize you might run me out of the parking lot at any moment. I get it. No, I'm kidding. Right. But, but, but the point is the prophet is willing and able and even called to say, thus saith the Lord. When, when, when Ezekiel is, is, is commissioned, repeatedly Yahweh says to him, you are to talk to the people. They're not going to listen to you. But talk to them and say, thus saith the Lord, whether they listen or not. And so Jesus is demonstrating that he is, in fact, fulfilling that role of prophet here. And he's really saying, what you're about to do is going to vindicate me as a prophet from God. Because you're going to want to kill me. Like you do with all the other ones. They wanted to throw him off of a cliff. There's some historical background on this. So stoning someone was typically the way that you would deal with a heretic. And they were essentially claiming him, you know, saying, you're a heretic, we're going we're to take you out at this point. But legally, at this time, you could not stone someone unless you were an official of some sort. And that would be whether under Rome's jurisdiction and or under the uh, kind of religious system, Pharisees, Sadducees, and others. If you, unless you had official kind of warrant to do so, you couldn't do it. But oftentimes, what would practically happen is people would have a complaint, and of course the Sadducees, Pharisees, they're like, I don't have time to deal with this. No, you can't stone them, but you're allowed to throw them off a cliff. That's fine. And by the way, please do take care of it for us if you would, because I don't have time for this today. And interesting also that Jesus here, what does he, what does he do? He actually allows them to kind of corral them or to corral him, right? He, he allows them to go through this process where they're pushing him to the cliff, they're, they're, he's getting close, and then it's almost as if he's letting them actually see what's happening in their hearts. Again, back to that prophecy given by Simeon that he's going to reveal the hearts of many. Let the, almost to the point, I mean, he, he could have just incinerated them in a nanosecond, right? Like, oh, that's not going to happen. Foof, you're gone. He could have done that or any other number of things, but he didn't. So in his grace and patience, he's teaching them, even in that moment. And then at that point where he would have gone off the cliff, he just walks through their midst. Luke doesn't elaborate on it. He doesn't tell us how, why, what. He just goes, that's what happened. Obviously, it's Jesus' power. We find in other places in in the gospel accounts that they could not kill him because it was not yet his time. But... Here's what we find here. They were more than happy to accept Jesus' claim as long as they found that claim to be acceptable. And the question for you and me is this. Will we only accept Jesus' claims when we find them acceptable? 
Are there times when Jesus says something and you're just kind of going, yeah, I don't know, I'm not sure about that. I like this one, though. There's a whole group of scholars that did that for a really long time in this just ridiculous thing called the Jesus Seminar. They actually did go through the New Testament, especially the Gospel accounts, and they color-coded the sayings of Jesus. One color was for what he definitely said. Another was for what he, we might have said. Another one was for what he probably didn't say. And then the last one was for what he definitely didn't say. What's striking is when you actually look at the work they did, you'll have phrases right next to each other that are like opposite colors on that spectrum. So, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever believed in him could have everlasting life. Yep, he said that. Um, and then, if you're going to follow me, you've got to lose your life, give up, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Yeah, he probably didn't say that. But here we've got to ask the question, will we accept Jesus' claims regardless of whether or not we find them acceptable? Will we listen? That's important. And that brings us really to what happens if we really recognize Jesus. We're going to grasp not only the claim of Jesus and the offense of Jesus, but lastly, we're also going to grasp the authority of Jesus. Because it doesn't matter if I find it acceptable or not. He is the Lord. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he goes on to show that in this next section. Look what happens in verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with, notice, authority. Jesus was speaking with authority. He wasn't like the scribes. The scribes would kind of like get up there and they'd be like, well, according to this scholar, it might mean this, it might mean that. Well, that was fascinating. Let's sit down. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't any like, this is what God is saying. This is his word. Bring it forward. Let's take it in. Let's respond. There's an urgency. There's an authority. Now, now Jesus, of course, is also speaking with authority. Because the Old Testament is his word. He is God. He spoke the universe into being. We're told in, in Colossians, he actually, by his power and his word, holds everything together right now. He is creator God. He rules. He is sovereign. So when he is speaking from authority, it's unique because all authority really is his. And yet, here in the synagogue, he's teaching and people are surprised by that. And, and what happens now is as Luke unfolds this, we see that authority enacted. So it's not just in the way he's preaching, it's also enacted in different things. So I want you to look out for a word through the rest of the time we have here today. And the word is rebuke. Look for the word rebuke. Why? Because that's Jesus authoritatively commanding something. And that's really the theme through the rest of the section. So look what happens next. Verse 33. In the synagogue there's a man possessed by a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business have with, do we have with each other? 
Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, what? Rebuked him. There it is. Authoritatively spoke. Be quiet, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. So there is Jesus commanding by authority. Come out. Um, we spent quite a bit of time on this previously, a little bit with when he, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. So certainly we find here, yes, demons are real, the devil's real. You know, some, some would try to say, oh, it's kind of another name for modern maladies that we have now. No. No, there are maladies, certainly. There are physical maladies. Yes, Jesus will deal with that in a few moments. But here, this is in fact a demon. And from what we understand from other passages in Scripture, these would be, be angels that fell with Satan that have decided to follow him in his rule. And now again, the devil is different from God. God's omnipresent. The devil is not. That's a good thing. God is omnipotent. He has all power. The devil's power is limited. God has all knowledge. He's omniscient. The devil's knowledge is limited. But the devil's minions really do carry out his bidding really well. And this is one of those. So Jesus, you know, Luke makes it very clear that, that, that this is a spirit. It's an unclean spirit. It's a demon. And so the demon's goal here is to corrupt what God's doing but you can also see every time Jesus encountered a demon, what it was there, there was fear. You've got to also notice the irony. The demons recognize who Jesus really is. Israel does not. So here we find Jesus rebukes says, be quiet. Why does he say be quiet? Because he doesn't want the testimony of a demon to be what's declaring who he is, although the demon recognizes him. It's also interesting, Jesus does not do an incantation. We'll see that throughout the gospel accounts with the miracles. He doesn't say, oh, get me my bag. I need my, my demon dust so I can fling this out here. And do it. No, he doesn't. He just goes, out, now, shh, quiet. Done deal. Everyone's amazed. Look at verse 36. Amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, Now, this surprises me. I, I would look and go, and they started saying, Wow, did you see how he did that thing with the demon? What do they say? What is this message? Huh. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits to come out. So you have this term for message. It's the word logos. What is this word? But you realize he's been preaching. We're already told that he's been preaching and teaching. That is certainly God's word going forward. And now he is also demonstrating his power and who he is by these miracles and casting out of demons. But God uses the miraculous. He uses these things to point out, to highlight, to look at the message. And that's been true from the days of Moses, through the days of Elijah and Elisha, through the time, the time of Jesus, certainly as the apostles in, in Acts will see that as well. The, 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 the miracles, they're, they're signs. They're pointing to something. They're pointing to a message, this good news 
about Jesus. And I, we've said this before, you know, when you're driving on the freeway and, and, and there's a, you know, maybe you're getting on 24 and there's the sign that says 24. You don't stop and go, wow, look at the sign, man. 24. Whoa. You don't do that. You drive on the road because the sign is pointing to something. And the thing it's pointing to is the main thing, not the sign. And it's the same thing here. We're going to see repeatedly these signs and wonders are given to highlight or feature who Jesus is. It's a verification of his claims. This has been fulfilled in my hearing. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. And I'm not just going to tell you. I'm showing you. It's also anticipating what's going to come later because the truth is there's going to be some accusations that come against Jesus that, oh yeah, you know why he can do that? Because he's working with them. It's an inside job. He's actually in league with demons and the devil. But seeing what's happening here, seeing the fear, the abject terror experienced by these demons and the way in which Jesus dealt with them, it makes that that accusation absurd. But again, Jesus does not call on God to drive out demons. He doesn't have any ritual. He simply utters authoritatively, come out. Jesus is clearly the stronger one. He's the mighty one. He's the one that John said back in chapter 3. This one is coming who is mightier than I. He's showing that. But it's not just the way in which Jesus demonstrates his authority over over the, the demonic realm. Look at verses 38 and following. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering a high fever. And they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he, what? Rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she got up and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. So we find again, this is not just over the demonic realm, but also over illness, over sickness. And Jesus reverses that. Why? Because this is the kingdom of God is coming. He is reversing the effects of the fall, the very things that we lost in the garden. When death and sickness entered into the world, Jesus says, I'm coming here to make all things new. My kingdom has arrived. I'm inaugurating it now. And in doing so, I am reversing the fall. Demonic activity, cast away. Sickness, healed. Death itself, conquered. So Jesus is doing this, and, and, and again, he, what does he do? By his authority, he rebuked the fever. Uh, verses 41 and following, he, he talks about, again, the demons were coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God, but rebuking them, there it is again, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. And by the way, some have asked me that, you know, do you think demon possession happens today? Is that, is that something that still goes on? And the answer is, yeah, I, I think so. It does. I think a lot of times we, we, um, 
don't see it as much in our part of the world. I've been to other places. Uh, I remember traveling to Micronesia many, many years ago. And uh, there was a brother there uh, who was describing some things to me. There's a lot of uh, kind of witch doctors and animism and, uh, you know, various practices that are like that. Because in that culture, what's going to keep people away from God? I think as the screw tape letters, we'd find it in that work of C.S. Lewis's, uh, the, 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 the demonic world and the devil is, is very pragmatic. Whatever will keep people away from God, that's what they'll do. So in an animistic religious setting, if blatant, bold demonstrations of demonic supernatural power will help keep people away from God, they'll use that. If in a sophisticated urban setting where not believing in them is better in terms of keeping people away from God, they'll use that. It doesn't matter. Whatever it takes to keep people away from Christ, that's what they'll do. So I don't think we see it as often here. But um, I also think the fact is God's power is greater and mightier. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I think we need to be aware of that. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's where we live. So let's be aware. I also think that the spiritual battle is bigger and broader than we think it is. Um, again, when, when, when someone's hand goes from the remote control to the Bible, that's a victory in the spiritual realm. When there's a couple at home and there's a conflict and then there's forgiveness and grace given, that's a victory in the spiritual realm. I think Ephesians 6 is the best place to go to even look at how spiritual warfare works. And repeatedly over and over, the verb there is to stand firm. And we've talked about that before. But Jesus demonstrates his authority and power over the demonic realm, over sickness. And then he also reveals that in the way he carries out his mission. Look at verses 42 through 44. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. Why? He was tired. Again, he's 100% God and 100% man. He's human. He's whooped. He needs rest. But the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Uh, it's interesting. As much as Nazareth rejected Jesus, Capernaum tries to keep him there. <laughs> we, we don't want you to go anywhere. We want you here. Why? Because we love what you're doing. But what does Jesus say? Verse 43. But he said to them, I must do more miracles. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. And then he clarifies even more. Look at how the verse ends. For I was sent for this purpose. What's the this refer back to? Preaching the kingdom. I know preaching has fallen on hard times today in many circles. So like, well, I don't know, it's kind of drab, kind of boring. I'd like to have a little more going on. But the reality is this. God has always used the proclamation of his word to supernaturally transform lives. Why? Because the Holy Spirit composed these words so that he would take them and supernaturally transform lives. And 
And so what did Jesus keep doing? He kept pressing ahead with that singular purpose. Look at verse 44. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So that's what Jesus did. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see this over and over again. Um, he, now, he hasn't called his disciples yet. That's coming up a little later. So at this point in time, he's traveling and he's preaching. And traveling and preaching. And declaring who he is. Here's the question, though, for all of us. Do we really recognize Jesus for who he is? Are we accepting him as he describes himself here, as the word does? Or instead, do we want a different kind of Jesus? There was a, this is an older account. Some of you are young enough, you probably won't know who this is. But there was an actor named Cary Grant many years ago. Uh, by the way, some old movies with Cary Grant in them are pretty good. Um, you can talk to Ben Liu. He knows a few. So he can be our reference on that. But he was, uh, he was talking about one time he was walking down the street and uh, he kind of met eyes with someone. You know, he was a pretty big star at that time. And this guy he was walking by kind of locked eyes with him in excitement. He said, wait a minute, you're, uh, no, don't tell me. Don't tell me, you're a, uh, you're a uh, rock hud, you know, almost saying rock Hudson, rock hud, no, you're, and so Grant thinks he's going to help him out, and so he finishes the sentence for him, Cary Grant, and the guy says, no, that's not it, you're uh, you're, you know, and so there was, you know, Cary Grant identifying himself with his own name in front of the guy. But, but, but that guy had someone in mind. And obviously it wasn't him. And so even, you know, the Gospel of John will say this, of Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So the question for us is this. Do you recognize him? And are you taking in who he claims to be? And are you living under that authority? Following him. We now come to a, a time of the Lord's table. And as we do so, um, we need to really ask ourselves that question. Am I really receiving Christ? Am I really taking in who he claims to be rather than the things I'm constructing and making him into. And so uh, today we're going to do it a little differently. Andrew's going to come forward with with the musicians and they're going to play some music. And and we're going to give just a time for everybody just to stop right now and just think about that. Just kind of meditate on that as the music plays. And then when we start singing... That'll be your cue to come up and and grab both of the elements and then return to your seat and then we'll partake of them together. But as the music's playing, let's just stop and consider that question. Are we receiving, accepting the Jesus as depicted by Jesus? Or is it something else?